Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we will be looking at verses 19 to 33 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 to 33. And I must say, the songs that we have sung together this morning were unreal, weren't they? Like, what a selection of songs. <laughs> it was am- That's amazing. And then there's still one to come after the message, which is also amazing. So thank you to uh, the Lord for working through our worship team in such a mighty way this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Actually, no, we're going to start in verse 25. <laughs> 25 to 33, that's what I meant. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 25. And they, the twelve spies, took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carries you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You would not go up but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, verse 26. And again, verse 32, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. The Lord who is perfectly wise, gracious, kind, just, and loving, commands. He reveals to his people his holy will and his people, the people, rebel against his command. And here lies the story, not simply of the Israelites at the borders of the promised land on this occasion, but this is the story of every single last generation of human humanity from Adam and Eve at the very beginning all the way to right now, today, As we sit here in church this morning, the Lord commands and the people rebel. The Lord reveals to mankind his decrees, which are, 
even though we may not think it when they're running contrary to our flesh, they are both for our good and for the good of the whole world. To live in obedience to the will and the word and the command of our Lord is that which is most conducive to, that which most greatly promotes our felicity and delight. Living a humble, repentant, obedient life for the glory of God as we war against the passions of our flesh, the temptations that we have that want to act contrary to the word of God. This is the pathway to joy, peace, contentedness in life. And yet, even though we know this, if you read God's word, you know that over and over and over again, he says quite clearly that obedience to me brings blessing. Even though many of us know this to be true, how often do we choose and how often do we desire that which runs contrary to his perfect word? It could be, as it was for Israel in the wilderness on this day, in the days of Moses, that fear is the driving force and dread overtakes us and we, lacking trust in the Lord, move into self-protection mode. And we lie and we cheat and we do whatever we need, for example, to, to gain financial relief during a tough time because we simply don't believe that God is going to do it for us. That's rebellion against God. Or it could be that we yield to or we surrender to or we are overcome by our flesh in the midst of one of our many ruthless and relentless battles that we must consistently wage against the plentiful obstacles to our obedience, whether it's the world, whether it's our fear, whether it's our flesh, whether it's the demonic realms, the barrage of tests and temptations, they just never seem to stop in our lives, do they? It could also be that even as we know the word of God, like Israel in the wilderness did, the word of God and the instruction of God was go up and take possession of the land because I'm going to go before you and I'm going to fight for you. Even though we know the truth that God's will and instruction are the pathway to our satisfaction and contentedness, sometimes we just simply choose to be faithless. We choose the idol that is alluring us in the moment rather than the God who promises joy. We choose to wallow in the trough of our sinful choices as we take the very things that God has given to us for our enjoyment the blessings that come from the giver of all good gifts, and we turn them into occasions for blasphemy, for disobedience, for misconduct, and even, as we'll see in our text this morning, the accusation of God, accusations against God. And in these ways, we can be exactly like Israel encamped on the borders of Canaan. On that day, think about, in your own life, and as you look out at the world, think about how many good and perfect gifts have been given to us by our Father in heaven. Life, laughter, marriage, singleness, sex, children, food, sports, art, music, nature, 
friendships. It could go on and on and on, right? And now think about how humanity corrupts and perverts those blessings and turns them into idols to be worshipped themselves rather than those blessings that inspire our praise of the one who gives them to us. Consider how we idolize and corrupt the gifts of God as we seek those gifts and those blessings as ends in and of themselves. How we begin to then accuse God and to attribute selfish motivations to God because he puts parameters around those gifts as to, to tell us how we are to enjoy them. As he defines how we are to receive and live in those good gifts and blessings for our joy. Think about how our society and our culture and sometimes even us ourselves move in the direction of trying to scrub or to alter the command of God and replace it with permissions, the permissions that, are, that a culture that is fully enslaved to their sin think that we should live out. And while they might feel good for a moment to give in to those idols, ultimately they kill the soul. So let me, just, uh, let me just poke at one of our idols for a second. I want you to think about every overindulgence from the food that God has given us to the bodies that we live in. The bodies that God has given us belong to Him, right? They're formed for His service. He fashions them, gives them to us, and tells us to go. And in, our cult, in, in the world, food is one of the great blessings that God has given to humanity. God is the originator and the creator of your taste buds. And he has blessed us in this world with a wonderful variety of flavors. Some of you might like a nice Newfoundland potato or a PEI potato, one of the places where there's potatoes. <laughs> and a burger. You might like that plain, just easy flavor, while some of you are like, I want every flavor just exploding in my mouth all at the same time. Spices galore. And God gives all of those to us for our exaltation of his generosity and creativity. He's also given us food as a way of connecting us around the table. Food is a very relational thing. For a millennia, food has been a source of great joy and relational increase. And all praise to our Lord for such a wonderful blessing. Amen? But see what we've done. And this is just one thing that we've done it to. I just chose this one. See what we have done in our culture with food. Food is de designed to be a blessing that we receive gratefully and then it propels us to praise the God who gave it. But food has itself in our culture become an idol to be worshipped. An insatiable idol with temples all around us. With an unstoppable and relentless advertising machine. It has become an idol that many of us seem to be unable to abstain from. An idol we seek for its own sake, not because it propels us to uh, the greater worship of God who gives it, but because it appeases our own desire. It used to be 
that fasting or abstaining from food for a time was a regular and normal part of the Christian life. It was a way of reminding yourself and displaying to the Lord as an act of worship that you retain some degree of self-control and that your appetites do not control you. But you trust God as in those moments when you would, out of great hunger, be tempted to turn stones into bread, you live by the word of God. You love God more than the gifts he gives. Fasting reveals to you and I that we are not idolaters. But now, more often than not, our culture would say, uh, our culture would have you say, self-control? What is that? Who needs that? Sure, Jesus said, might say, deny yourself, but you know better than what, but what you need than he does, right? You know better what makes you feel good than God does, right? So do what you want, when you want, do what feels good to you, do what makes you happy. If it looks good to your eyes and seems pleasant to your senses, take part. And anyone, anyone who tells you to listen to what that overly strict, old, dusty book, the Bible says, they're just an enemy to your real happiness. Don't be so concerned about the size and the shape of your body, the body that God has given you for the sake of his service. Sure, Scripture might say you're not your own. Sure, Scripture might say gluttony is one of the seven grievous sins. But the Bible's an old book, and it also says don't wear clothes made of two different fabrics, so do what you want. And we oftentimes, when those people arrive into our lives who tell us these truths, we'll say, mm, you need to be cut out and removed from my life. You're a hindrance to my happiness. And it's not just about food either. But in just about every single area in Scripture where God commands us to do something for His glory, to live for Him, where everywhere that God shows us how to live an obedient life, the life that is actually most favorable for, to the amplification of your joy and contentedness in the world, have you noticed that it's in those areas that our world seems to take them and turn them into idols that destroy your joy and promote increased devastation all around us? Think about sexuality, for example. See what the world has done to the covenant signs that have been established by God to remind us both of his holy justice and his merciful long-suffering with sinners. Think about your initial response when you see the rainbow. It upsets me to no end that when I look at the rainbow, rather than my first inclination being, oh, thank you, Lord, Thank you for the covenant that you made with humanity not to, to devastate us with a flood that kills us all again. My first inclination is to consider the depravity of our culture and get irritated by that. I have to give my head a shake, right? I have to kind of bump it a little bit, like, get that out of here. Come on. The rainbow is God's, given to us as a sign of his grace. What God has established as a, as a reminder to himself and to mankind has been transformed into a rallying cry for sexual deviance. This is the common method that humanity uses. And not only that, but we see how the, the, the world tries to do this with almost everything God has established for his praise and his glory. Whether it's laboring to suppress what can be known about God by simply looking at creation. 
Romans 1 is so clear. You look out at creation, it is so clear that there is a God who is eternal in power and divine in nature that the text tells us in Romans 1.20 that all of humanity is without excuse. Without excuse in their rejection of and refusal to believe in the one to whom all of these beautiful things in creation point. The God that nature presents to all humanity is one that we must submit to because he is sovereign and he is powerful over us and he owns the rights to all things and he is God and we are not. And, but the existence of such a God is not something that humanity in general appreciates. And for this reason, Paul will go on and tell us that in every generation, humanity has claimed to be wise but has become fools as they exchange the glory of God for the images and things in creation. Why? So that they can follow after their lusts and in the, follow after the perversions of their heart. You ever notice how moving away this or getting rid of or eliminating this sovereign God and replacing it with idols made of wood and sticks and stones that always seem to affirm and permit the things that we want to do is the practice of humanity. There's a reason why in ancient Greece, when you went to a temple, it was jam-packed with prostitutes that you could purchase. I mean, that is not God's way. But they created all of these idols that permitted them to engage in those acts because that's what they wanted to do. That's always what an idol is. It's something that you create to permit you to do what you want to do so you can forget God and not actually obey anything he commands. And you can see also in the area of marriage, just listen to the way people talk about marriage today. God has commanded marriage and set parameters about marriage, right? And listen to the people talk about it. Listen to the ways people try to redefine it or how others try to minimize it or some think of it as um, an un unnecessary to a lifelong relation sexual relationship between two people. Some of the people will speak about it as though it's a temporary contract where two people promise to live with each other so long as the other person makes them happy. Forget the whole better or worse, sickness and health, death, do, death till death do we part thing. This is only until we stop making each other happy. Think about the order and the roles of the sexes. The strengths and weaknesses that God has created you as a woman and you as a man with. The areas that God has established for you as a woman to best serve in and for you as a man to best serve in. Think about how the world has labored to turn all of that upside down. And think about all of the anger in the culture against these words of God. Who'd have thought that at some point it would be offensive to say, as Paul wrote to Titus, in Titus 2, verses 4 and 5, Older women, teach the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Who would have thought that would be so offensive? This is a biblical wife. This is a beautiful thing. Women, hear the word of God, not the words of a world that hates God. 
And who would have ever thought that it would run contrary to the spirit of the age to tell men, as the Apostle Paul did to the men at Corinth, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Men, hear the word of God, not the words of a world that hates God. Men, lead, watch, guard, protect, love. Especially in a culture that hates that phrase, act like men. Why? Because God has commanded you to do that. See what our culture has done to sex and to marriage and to the biological realities with which God has created our bodies? Listen to the host of reasons and justifications and hostilities and arguments raised by those who love their sin more than they love God, by those who are deluded and enslaved by their sin, who would rather receive the wages of sin, which is eternal death, than the gift of life offered to all by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, all of this rebellion, God has commanded, the people have rebelled over and over and over and over. See how Scripture tells us that we who believe in Christ, we are all one. We are all one in Christ. And we all share in the inheritance of Abraham, which is the greatest blessing and privilege that humans can ever have. Whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are slave or free, whether you have lots of money or no money, whatever your skin color is, whatever country or culture you live in, Every one of us who believes in Christ is one, and we are heirs to the greatest of blessings and promises, and in Him we are all brought together as one. And yet, if you notice, society rebels against this oneness that we are supposed to be working towards and fostering, right? Our society would rather ignore and violate this biblical principle and work overtime to bring force wedges between us, to amplify cultural and ethnic and situational differences, financial differences, historical differences, circumstantial differences between us who ought over all things to love one another as Christ has loved us. Not one of us in this room No one in this world is worthy of the mercy that Christ has given to you if you believe. And so none of you, none of us, no matter who you are, can consider yourselves greater or more worthy than any other Christian brother or sister. And listen, if this is a big issue for you, that the world's injustices both in the past and the world's injustices in today, they aggravate you or they irritate you and they, want, they cause you to want to like fight these worldly battles. Here's the word of God for you. Leave it in the hands of God. God is perfectly just and he will deal with them perfectly according to his perfect, wise, just, and holy will. And you obey Christ Love your fellow believer as Christ has loved you. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he will repay. You might be asking, well, that's a lot of stuff. What are you talking about? I thought we are in Deuteronomy. All of this is simply to amplify the point we began with. God commands, humanity disobeys. 
It is so predictable when God calls on mankind to hear and to obey his word regarding X, Y, or Z. It is those very things that sinful humanity labors to corrupt and the end result is disobedience along with all of its spiritual, social, and physical consequences. If you want to see what disobedience to the word of God produces, just lift up your eyes and look out at the world. Consider the results and consider the outcomes of mankind's endless parade and celebration of disobedience to God. See the end and conclusion, right? We live in a world of death, devastation, destruction, and decay. And the same was true for the Israelites as they camped at Kadesh Barnea on the borders of Canaan, on the borders of the Promised Land. In both circumstances, whether ancient Israelite or modern Christian, the call and the command and the warning of God is the same. Go in obedience, fearlessly, confidently, praising the Lord all the way, and trust Him to display to a world that needs Him how great and how powerful and how dependable He is. Don't rebel against Him. Seek Him, obey Him, live for Him. Hear how all of this played out for Israel in the wilderness. As we take a step back and kind of rehash where we've been. They they had just received word from the spies that had been sent into the land. And the spies came back and noted, or the spies had noted the bounty of the land as they went into the land that God had promised to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. When they came into the valley of Eskal, they saw these grapevines and they were able to cut this gigantic cluster of grapes, so big, so heavy, that they had to put it on a pole and hold it between two men. And they also grabbed a few pomegranates and a few figs and they set them the proof of Canaan's fertility and the proof of Canaan's abundance before the nation of Israel. And they said in Numbers 13, 27, Numbers 13 and 14 are the backdrop for the, what we see in Deuteronomy, here in Deuteronomy 1. They said, we came to this land. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Everything God said about the land is true. As we know the good and word, the good word and promise of God always is, right? And here is the proof. Look at the produce of Canaan. It is spectacular. More than we could ever have imagined. Check out the size of this grape cluster. But they said, there is a problem. Yes, God has told us to go up and take possession of the land, but one little, one little issue. The people who dwell in the land, Numbers 13, 28, are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. In other words, the word God spoke to us about the goodness of the land is accurate. However, that thing about going up and taking possession of the land, that command that the Lord gave us not to fear or be dismayed because he will go for us and he will fight for us, we aren't so sure about that part. Can the Lord really secure the victory against so, such a formidable opponent? 
Can the Lord really go before us and conquer such a well-trained army as the one we saw in Canaan? Can the Lord really go before us and knock down the thick, high walls along with the numerous other fortifications that the Amorites have put in place? We can't do it, God's commanded. The people are rebelling. We can't do it. Listen, Israel, let's just eat these grapes, these figs and these pomegranates, and let that be the end of this whole charade. In fact, perhaps we should just return to Egypt. Return to our enslavement in Egypt instead. At least there, we had food and we had shelter. And as 10 of the 12 spies begin speaking like this to the nation of Israel, giving this bad report, the faithful Caleb along with the support of his of faithful Joshua, he tried to inspire the people to go up in obedience to the command of the Lord, saying this in Numbers 13.30, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now you can imagine Caleb, right? Don't listen to these guys. They're fearful and they're faithless and they are trying to inspire fearfulness and faithlessness in you. Of course we can win this victory. God is with us. Let us not delay. Let's go right now and take possession of this land. If you are only considering the battle, Israel, from an earthly perspective, yes, the armies are too big for us. Yes, the walls are too strong for us. Of course you will be afraid. But did you hear what the Lord said to us? He, he said, and remember, this is the same God who delivered us from enslavement in Egypt. You remember? You remember when he struck the nation of Egypt with plague after plague and strike after strike? This very God who delivered us from there has promised to go before us. He has promised to fight for us. He has promised to win the victory. All we need to do is go in obedience. How can we lose if God is on our side? It's a good question for us today, right? We can't lose. We will not lose. But the people of Israel, as Moses recounts, they couldn't hear the words of the faithful, but accepted and were melted with fear by the words of the faithless. And in that fear, they refused to go up and take the land. God commanded, the people disobeyed. And notice, their fear and faithlessness caused things to go from bad to worse. Look at verse 26 of Deuteronomy 1. They would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord their God. Now that word for rebel here is in what we call the imperfect tense. It means that the people rebelled not just once, but they rebelled over and over and over and over. They kept rebelling against God and they did this in numerous ways. As we explore these verses, we're going to note a trajectory of rebellion, four stages of rebellion that Israel went through. The four stages of fear and the fearful and faithless ones. And they did this first, verse 27, by murmuring in their tents. You see that in verse 27? Murmuring in their tents. Stage one of rebellion's trajectory, murmuring. 
Now, hopefully you're noticing a repeating pattern of this theme in this first chapter of Deuteronomy. This generation of faithless Israelites is characterized as a murmuring, complaining, grumbling people who are never satisfied by the Lord's provisions, blessings, commands, deeds of power that he works on their behalf. And this repetition is purposeful because it reveals to us the uselessness of griping and moaning. I want you to notice something. They went murmuring in their own tents. But was that murmuring or complaining spirit ever dissipated, decreased, or lessened by their getting it off their chest? It's not like after they complained a whole bunch, they suddenly said, whew, well now I feel better. I got that off my chest, so now let's go in obedience. No. They went to the next tent to complain. After complaining in their own tent for a while, it got worse in that they went to the tents beside them to complain about the very same thing they complained about in their own tent because that's what murmuring always does. But now, as they go from tent to tent to tent, they're hearing the complaint of that person and then of that person, and so they're adding little details to their complaints until everybody is complaining about this particular situation. It only makes things worse. It only increased the nation's anger and faithfulness, faithlessness and fear, and it only escalated the frequency and strength of their complaints. Because they're groaning, their grousing, their fault-finding, and their belly-aching was, and the same is true for us today, it is a useless, fruitless act. It produces nothing of value. Hear that. Complaining, moaning, murmuring produces not one single thing of value in your life. All it does is make things worse. It brings nothing good in its train. But the opposite is what happens. The more you complain, the angrier you get. And the angrier you get, the more you complain. And the more you complain, the worse things get, both internally as we spiral into ever more anger and discontent and complaining, and externally, as you leaven the whole camp when you move from tent to tent to tent with your complaining. It is a useless, fruitless act, and it is rebellion against the goodness of God. And you can see this, right? You can see it playing out in this Israelite generation. You, you and I know it from our own lives, but you can go to the text and you can see it playing out as they went from murmuring in their own tents, which is stage one of rebellion, they grumbled in their own residences about what God was commanding them to do. And soon after, it wasn't enough for them to simply complain to their wife and their children. Then they went about from tent to tent, griping and protesting to their neighbors about their situation, about what God had called them to do, and about the leaders through whom God had spoken to them. In spite of everything God had given them, in spite of all of the blessings in their life, in spite of their breath, and the freedom that God had won for them from Egypt, the food in the wilderness, in spite of every single blessing, they still murmured. And as they did, notice this, 
they drowned out the voices of faith among them and caused the people to listen to the faithless rebels. There were firm, faithful, and resolute men among them, Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. These four men were ignored while the defiant, insubordinate men distorted God's intentions, contaminated the minds of the people to the point where they would say, let's go back to Egypt. The nation had been poisoned by the leaven of faithless men, poisoned by the leaven of their fearful hearts, and they stepped up to stage two of their rebellion as they moved from murmuring to number two, ascribing evil intentions to the Lord. Step one, murmuring. That murmuring leads to increasing anger, hostility, and discontent in your own life, which leads to step two, hostility or the ascription of evil intentions to the Lord. Listen to what it says in verse 27 of Deuteronomy 1. They said, because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Do you see the depths of their rebellion against God here? What God intended for their good, what God intended as an opportunity for them to glorify His mercy and His grace and His wisdom and His power and His might and His love, the people are speaking of it as though God were evil and His intentions were the exact opposite of what God was intending here. Their fear and flesh-driven complaining have brought them to this point where they're now ascribing evil to God. God had made it clear to them, here's what I command you, go up and take the land. I am fighting for you. I am going to give it to you. And what is it the people hear? They hear, he hates us. He's brought us out of Egypt not to bless us, but to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. God's intention is not to bless me, but to curse me. He's not working for my good. He doesn't want to see me flourish, but instead, he's working against us. See, whereas God said, I'm going to go in, I'm going to conquer the inhabitants of the land, and you shall enter in it and enjoy its bounty and blessing, the fear-filled Israelites at this moment heard the exact opposite. He doesn't want our good. He wants our harm. Anytime we choose sin over God, we're doing the same thing. Anytime God says, here's my intention for this thing, and you say, no, I would rather this. this is, it's exactly, you don't trust that God is seeking your good. God commanded, the people disobeyed. And that disobedience snowballed into stiff-necked rebellion to the point where they began distorting the gracious intentions of God. The Israelites here doubted the character of God, and they interpreted his acts of love as the acts of a trickster, a liar, a deceiver, who in actuality doesn't love them, but hates them, and is seeking to rob them of joy, not promote it. In this way, people today aren't all too difficult, right? Or all too uh, different. In every generation, while the technology changes, our hearts remain the same. We know from the Word of God in the New Testament that everything God does in our lives, everything God commands us 
to live out and obey. It's all for his glory. It's all for our good. But as it was with Eve, oftentimes we can look at the thing that he's holding back and we can think that he's trying to withhold joy from us. We can begin to doubt his kind intention towards us. We might say to ourselves, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? I know that if I had this or if I was able to do this or I was able to take part in that, that would make me happy. But here's the thing. You and I don't know what will make us happy. That's why God had to put it in a book for us. You have no idea what will make you happy, which is why all of us consistently do things that only make life worse for ourselves. Does God want you to be joyful? Yes! And how do we achieve that? Do what he says. And if you don't believe that, it's that you don't believe the, that his word is the pathway to joy. Let me ask you a question. Would you really think it wise to trust the lies of sin more than the promises of God? Would you really think it wise to trust the promises of sin or the lies of sin more than the promises of God? They continued in verse 28 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. In their rebellion, they said, well, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven, and besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. So this history that Moses is providing, uh, he gives it to us in Numbers 14 with a little bit more information. If you want to flip there, please do. After hearing the report about the size of the people in Canaan and the height of the walls that surrounded the city, Numbers 14.1 tells us that all the congregation meaning all the people of Israel, raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. This is, this is unbelievable. A time for joyful celebration. The promises of the Lord to Abraham were on the verge of being fulfilled. The land was about to be given to this people. What ought to have been a joy-filled celebration was turned into an occasion for weeping all night long. Do you see what the leaven of faithlessness has brought about um, in the lives of this nation? See what the unchecked disobedience to the command of God has produced. See what the spread of fearful, faithless words can do to a congregation. For us, we are blessed with a commission to go. And we are given the promise of Christ that He is with us always and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. But oftentimes, instead of joyful going in joyful obedience in that authority, confident and looking to God to fulfill His word to save souls by our proclamation. I mean, what is more joyful than that? Seeing people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you, there's a few of you in here that have come to the Lord Jesus Christ during my time here, and it is one of the most 
heart-bursting motivations. I can, I can't, it's awesome. It makes me want to do it more and more and more and more. But there are times when even though we know Christ has all authority, even though he, we know he's told us to go up and take the land, metaphorically speaking, even though we know all of that, how often do we, like the Israelites, look at the world and complain in our tents? The people are so big and powerful and strong. The walls are so high. And so we walk around, just like the Israelites, grumbling and mad. Stinking world. And we just gather up our wagons or we circle our wagons and we just sit there and talk about how bad the world is rather than going up in faith into it to win people for Jesus. We talk and walk angrily, faithlessly, fearfully, rather than searching and laboring and seeking to say, seek out the lost to see them come to Jesus. In many ways, our hearts are very much like the hearts of the people in Israel, drained of their courage they were emptied of valor any valor any bravery as the fear of canaan displaced the power of the word of god and that resulted in as numbers continues in verse 2 all the people of israel grumbled against moses and aaron the whole congregation said to them and listen to this would that we had died in the land of egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Or if only, if only we had died in the wilderness, Moses. If only we had died in Egypt. That would have been better than the situation we find ourselves in now, Moses. And this is a nonsensical way to think, isn't it? It's supremely foolish. Would that we had died in Egypt. If everyone is wishing that they'd already died somewhere else, then why not just strap on your sword and go up in obedience and take the promised land? What's the worst that can happen? You die? If you're going to die, if you think you're going to die, then why content yourself with some meaningless death in Egypt or the wilderness? Why not do something meaningful and valiant? Why not make your death count? Become a missionary and go to Iran. Here's the thing, you don't have to fear because your God is with you and he will secure the victory. Sure, you may lose your physical life, but a believer, as a believer, you don't have to be afraid because your inheritance is eternal life. So Israel did not need to wish for death in Egypt or the wilderness, nor do you need to fear death as you go up in obedience to the Lord into a hostile world that seems quite powerful and strong, that seems to have well-trained armies and really high walls. And this is what the four faithful men in the land kept trying to get across to the fear-filled Israelites. Again, it would seem that there were only four faithful men in the nation at this moment, and the people didn't want to listen to them. They were not inclined to listening as Moses and Caleb called for faithful obedience. They were not inclined to dispensing with their fear and laying down their rebellion and replacing that fear with conviction regarding the kind intention, the goodwill, and the unstoppable power of God to fulfill His promise. 
But instead, the people grumbled to and against these four godly men. The nation did not like these men contradicting their preferred narrative. That God hated them. That God had brought them into the wilderness to destroy them. And so Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua were, for these faithless rebels, an unwelcome reminder of the command of God, the very command that the nation sought to remain in rebellion against. As we'll see in a few minutes, such people, meaning the faithful, who are reminders to a general mass of rebels that God is sovereign, that God is to be obeyed, and rebellion against Him must be repented of, such voices will be grumbled against. They will be unwelcome. And more, there will be times when the very people you seek to serve and to help pick up stones in order to kill you. But before we get there, in Numbers 14.3, the people continued their griping, saying this, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? You see the progression again. The fearful, faithless reports lead to fearful, faithless, complaining people who first grumble against the Lord, second attribute to the Lord malicious motivations and question His good character, and now third, the people now in their rebellion make plans to return to Egypt. They strategize and plan and move ever deeper into their rebellion. So the Israelites here once again question the reasons for God's leading them into this place, reiterating their belief that God has led them here to see them fall by the sword. And if they would go up to fight and to try and conquer the land of Canaan, they would all die. And here's their question. Here's their justification for not going up. What would happen to our wives and children? They justify their lack of faithful obedience by appealing to those they think will be left behind to die in the wilderness without them. Who would take care of my family if something happened to me? The Lord? The same Lord who's brought us here to die? No, we're not going to risk it. We are not going to go up Here's what we're going to do. We're going to return to Egypt. Again, I don't know why it is, but for some reason, this generation thought Egyptian enslavement of their children would be a more reasonable option than obeying the Lord's command. They thought that it would be better to cart their families back to the harsh, oppressive enslavement of the Egyptian empire and to have them grow up in that oppressive enslavement where they were whipped and they were given they were told to make bricks without an, all of the the things needed to make the bricks they had to go out themselves remember Israel lived a life of broken spirit they thought that would be better for their children than obeying the lord here this attitude points to all in our own day who would prefer a life of enslavement to sin over a life of faithful obedience to Christ the lord so this, this deliverance of Israel from Egyptian enslavement, it is a historical event. 
And it's also a picture. It's also an illustration, a pointer, a foreshadowing of the greater deliverance that will be secured by the Lord Jesus Christ for all who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And for those who truly love Jesus, looking back to Egypt, Egypt here being a metaphorical for our old sinful lives, looking back fondly at our old sinful lives, at the enslaving power of sin that once dominated our lives, that once governed our thoughts and our passions and our actions, the very sins that brought us to groaning, the very sins that promised us life and happiness but came back void, the very sins that only served to intensify our sorrow, Sure, in moments of weakness, they can catch us off guard, and even surprisingly, we can look back at them longingly. But for all who truly love the Lord Jesus, we never really want to return to the Egypt of our sin again. We want nothing to do with that old enslavement. But instead, we look forward, ahead, onwards, and upwards to the Lord, laboring now in the power of the Holy Spirit to live for Him in the here and now. We want to be unlike the world in that when we hear God command, what do we do? We obey. And we trust His power and His goodness. And you and I know that there will be times where many think they trust Christ. They heard the some... Good, uh, presentation of the good news given to them and they accepted a certain portion of it. But then when God commands and they don't want to obey, they prove themselves faithless wilderness types who would rather return to Egypt than love the Lord Jesus Christ and never leave His side. If you love Jesus, you know it. He is wonderful. I don't think there is a better way of living than for Christ. And so you live as citizens of the promised land. Don't live like a citizen of Egypt. Israel is here choosing Egypt. There are more people than I care to... There's a ton of people who make a profession of faith who choose Egypt. Israel here chose to go back and they started putting plans into place. They didn't simply say in verse 14.3... Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? But in Numbers 14, verse 4, we see that they take concrete steps to that end. You see it? He says, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. There's stage four in your rebellion. Let us find a leader, one of our faithless number, to lead us back into slavery. We want a leader that embraces and accepts our fears and acts accordingly. A leader that won't push or press us to obey these unreasonable commands of God. We want a leader who will take us where we want to go. And who won't intrude in my life with a lot of that obey the Lord type talk. We want a leader who will lead us back into slavery and away from the Lord. And this was so shocking a statement to Moses Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua, that Moses and Aaron, Numbers 14, 4 and 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. 
and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. The four righteous men in the nation just could not believe what they'd just heard. They could not believe that they had just heard the people put together a proposal and put that proposal forward to return to Egypt under a new leader. This reflected a complete rejection of the plan of God to deliver them. And here's the, the, most, the saddest part is they were so close. The land was right there. They simply had to trust and obey. But instead, they initiated a plan to return to Egypt, again, under new leadership, which led Moses and Aaron to fall on their faces in shock, and it led Caleb and Joshua to tear their clothing at the blasphemy that they'd just heard. But as all faithful leaders do, they made one last-ditch effort to admonish and to correct a people standing on the precipice of their own destruction to get them back on track, to have the people repent and believe. Caleb and Joshua gave one last appeal to the people in Numbers chapter 14, verses 7 to 9, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Meaning, listen, not only is the land that God promised to us good, but it's exceedingly good. It is so much better than we thought. And the Lord will, if you'd only hear him and obey him, if you'd only repent of your sin and trust him, the Lord will bring us into that land. He will give it to us. Please stop your rebellion. Don't fear the people. They are bread for us. In other words, we will eat them alive. The Lord has removed their protection, so while their men look strapping and powerful and their walls look sturdy and impenetrable, God is with us and not them, so we don't need to fear anything. Let's go. And Moses also, along with them, said, according to Deuteronomy 1.29, don't be afraid or in dread or afraid of them. Don't be terrified, don't tremble, don't be awed by what seems like power in any human hand. Why? Because the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way you went until you came to this place. Israel. The Lord your God is not out to harm you or to destroy you. He has shown you time and time again that he is with you, that you don't need to fear the Canaanites, so let's go up and take the land. But the people were obsessed with their return to Egypt. And when a person is bent on appeasing a sinful passion, there are times when no amount of reasoning, no amount of admonishing, no amount of exhortation will be heard. But instead, as they strive to maintain and protect their commitment to the practice of rebellion, they will lash out at the one that is calling them to obedience. It's almost like just taking a stick and poking at a hornet's nest. And that's what happened to Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua. 
The people, refusing to hear their appeals, continued their rebellion by responding violently in the fifth stage of rebellion. Murmuring, ascribing evil to the Lord, a plan to return to slavery in Egypt, the selection of a new leader to lead them to that enslavement, and now an attempt to eliminate those who get in the way of their return to Egypt. We read in Numbers 14.10, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. That's a death sentence. It was only because the Lord intervened. It was only because the Lord's glory appeared around the tabernacle that those four men were not executed in that moment. We'll explore the consequences of that rebellion next Sunday, but as we come to a close this morning, I just want to just pick up on one theme so that we can appreciate, exalt, and magnify our Lord for it. It's a theme that Israel on this day didn't appreciate, one that the Lord has revealed to you and I as a source of comfort and assurance, a foundation for our hope as we live in a world that seems like it has strong people and high walls. And if we were to just look with our human eyes, it would seem like we'll never make any positive movements forward. But the Lord here in Deuteronomy presents himself to Israel and to us as a warrior who fights for his people. As a warrior who goes before us and fights. We read in Exodus 15 verse 3 in the Song of Moses, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Or as we read in Isaiah, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a, might, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. I personally love this imagery. The Lord reveals here that as he prepares to fight for you and I, to fight for your soul, to fight for your life, to fight for your salvation, to fight for the souls of his children all across the world, to prepare and knock down walls so that we can go into the world and make disciples. As he gears up to wage war against the foes that line up to take you down, he stirs up his zeal with loud shouts, he says through Isaiah. Think about the general before, who before a clash commences, rides up and down the battle lines and inspires the fighting spirit of the soldiers about to wage war. Or think about the team captain in your favorite sport who rouses up his mates on the field or on the rink with enthusiastic shouts and passionate calls to play hard and secure the win. The Lord, when it comes to you and I, to you and I who are saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ, who have been tasked with a commission to go into all the world, he shouts aloud and he readies himself to go before you to secure the victory. And here is the good news. God never loses. He is the greatest of all warriors. His record is perfect, unblemished, And he always leaves the battlefield victorious. So, may we, unlike Israel of old, refuse to rebel against the good word and command of our Lord. For any reason, may we not be fearful and faithless. May we not 
look out at a world and just think about it from the physical perspective and not go up and take possession of what God is calling us to go up and take possession of. But especially in keeping with the theme of this text, I pray that you would not lack any confidence in the Lord who loves you, the Lord who is at this moment working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So, when God commands, may you and I, in trust, obey. Father, thank you for your word in Deuteronomy this morning. Thank you for being so patient with us. We think we know so much. We think we know more than you at times. We think we know better what will make us happy, joyful, content, peaceful. But in the end, it's you. You are what make us joyful, peaceful, content. Obedience to your word brings a peace that passes all understanding. So I pray that you would help us always to look forward in faith and may in the power of your Holy Spirit we heed the words of Scripture only to fear God and not to fear anything else. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious, perfect, and wonderful name. Amen.